Let's read Psalm 86 together. Psalm 86, the prayer of David. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart. And I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame, because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. I invite you now also to turn to Lord's Day 49. This afternoon we're going to deal with the third petition of the Lord's Prayer, Your Will Be Done. And in Lord's Day 49, what Scripture teaches about this in in general is explained to us. Lord's Day 49, page 562. What is the third petition? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is, grant that we and all men may deny our own will and without any murmuring obey your will, for it alone is good. Grant also that everyone may carry out the duties of his office and calling as willingly and faithfully as the angels in heaven. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
we are almost at the end of another year. And it seems that as every year goes by, society unravels a little more. Many examples could be given. Harmful advertising that normalizes unhealthy attitudes towards sex and relationships. The constant lack of transparency and truth in politics. The absence of critical thinking skills in society in general. And so on. And the Lord's Prayer seems to address some of these issues in the third petition when it says, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When it refers to God's will here, it means God's law. Clearly, God's will is not being carried out in a great number of places these days. And if you were to read this petition, you might be led to believe that this petition only applies to those problems that we were just considering. But when the Catechism begins to explain this petition, it doesn't focus on those sorts of issues at all. Not in the beginning. Instead, it begins with us. It says, grant that we and all men may deny our own will and without any murmuring obey your will for it alone is good. Now, maybe you find that surprising when you start thinking about it because the, the catechism is implying that all people basically have the same problem. They all struggle with an ability to submit to God's will. And the surprising part here is that it assumes that even Christians still struggle with this as well, that even Christians have this problem as well. The catechism gets that idea from Scripture, though. This afternoon we read from Psalm 86. David, in a sense, also wants to obey God and his circumstances, but he struggles to do so. He has to pray Unite my heart, because by nature his heart is not united. His, his heart was divided between many conflicting priorities. And the same is true for us. As we grow in our faith, we see how much work still remains to be done in us. We realize our need for grace. So this petition is about more than just learning to do the right thing or praying to God to teach us to do the right thing. It's also a petition that we develop the right attitude. And since we always fall short, it becomes a prayer for God's grace when it's properly understood. We can't transform ourselves. We need Him to do so. And so, in the third petition, we pray for God to continue His work of transformation in us. And we'll pay attention to the transformation of our desires and the transformation of our deeds. So the Catechism says, grant that we and all men may deny our own will. And this petition is often misunderstood. People think that it's referring to God's will in the sense of His hidden decree. For instance, in 2 Chronicles 18 verse 22, we read how God had decreed that the wicked king Ahab would die in his battle against the Syrians. And King Ahab tried to Warm his way out of that, but he couldn't. It was decreed, and so it came to pass. There was no way for him to escape that. So that's God's, an example of God's will in the sense of his hidden decree. 
But that sense of God's will is not what the catechism is referring to here. Because if it were, then this petition is implying that God's will always comes to pass in heaven, but not on earth. Then it would make it sound like, well, God's hidden decree is always accomplished in heaven, but, but He's not always in control on earth. And we know that that's not true from the rest of Scripture. So really, there's only one correct way to understand this petition. God's will in this context is His law. It's the same law that you heard summarized in the Ten Commandments this morning. That's God's will. And most people ignore it. And sometimes we do as well. Or we obey it grudgingly. That's why it says, Grant that we and all men may deny our own will and without any murmuring obey your will, for it alone is good. It says, Grant. Now, when it says that God's will is good, it doesn't mean that it's, just the, that it's just one good option or the only good option among many other options. There's more to it than that. God's will alone is good because God alone is good. No one is good except God alone. But that word good is so overused that it really doesn't mean anything to us anymore. And that's why we had to read Psalm 86 together, because it gives us perspective. Look at Psalm 86. Look at what it says to us, what it teaches us about the goodness of God. Look at verse 5. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. God is a God who hears all who call upon him. He abounds in covenant faithfulness. He overflows in covenant love to all who call upon Him. Verse 6, Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble I call upon you, for you answer me. God is there for His people. And then verse 8, All the nations you have made shall come and shall worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. That's verse 9. Actually, verse 8 says, There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. And then it says, All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. So God is in a class of his own. And this psalm is trying to help us understand that, to understand that there is no one else like him, nor will there ever be. There is no one else who has done what he does, no one else who does what he does. And above all, God is a God who forgives. Look at verse 15. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And when you read that, you, if it sounds familiar, that's because it's the same words. They echo the same words that we find in Exodus 34, verse 6. God's self-revelation after the golden calf incident. God's people had done the worst thing that they could do under the circumstances, and yes, God did punish them, but this was His response to them. God is not reactive. His character does not change depending on what people do. His goodness is not a response to their behavior. And so it says this God alone is worthy of our wholehearted worship and our unconditional obedience. But that's where we run up against a problem, don't we? The Catechism already alludes to that when it says that we need to deny our own will. 
So we are often not on the same page as this glorious God who is described to us in the words of Psalm 86. In fact, by nature, things are much worse. Let's turn to the Canons of Dort together for a moment. Canons of Dort, chapter 3, 4, article 1. Article 1 is uh, on page 575, and what I want to do with you this afternoon is, is skim through a couple of these articles and focus only on the parts where it talks about our will. Now, we refer to the canons of Dort more often, but this time we're only going to look at what it says about our will, just to get an idea, because the canons summarize Scripture here, to get an idea as to what, how bad things really are. It says in Article 1, In the beginning, man was created in the image of God. He was adorned in his mind with true and wholesome knowledge of his creator and of all spiritual things. His will and heart were upright, all his affections pure, and therefore man was completely holy. In other words, man was able to do God's will. But man rebelled, rebelling against God through the instigation of the devil and through his own free will. He deprived himself of these excellent gifts and instead brought upon himself blindness, horrible darkness, futility, and perverseness of judgment in his mind, wickedness, rebelliousness, and stubbornness in his will, there you have that word again, and heart and impurity in all of his affections. So there is no part of our existence as human beings that is exempt And our will is only a part of the problem. It is irrevocably by nature opposed to God. And the canons go on to explain that nothing can get us past that. The light of nature can't. The light of nature then being the general understanding that people have of right and wrong. It talks about that in Article 4. That cannot get us past our rebelliousness. The law cannot get us past our rebelliousness. It can simply point out our rebelliousness. And so we need the gospel. And Article 6 then really transitions into that very beautifully. It says, look, no, we have the facts. We need the gospel. What, therefore, neither the light of nature nor the law can do, God performs by the power of the Holy Spirit through the word or ministry of reconciliation, which is the gospel of the Messiah, by which it has pleased God to save men who believe, both under the old and under the new dispensation. The gospel is the good news of salvation. But listen carefully. Salvation is never only a series of historical facts that you accept. Salvation is something that happens to you. So what happens when someone is converted and receives salvation? Then the Holy Spirit goes to work on that person. And then look at Article 11, Midway. Article 11, going here about four lines from from the top, 578. By the efficacious working of the same regenerating spirit, he also penetrates into the innermost recesses of man. He opens the closed and softens the hard heart, circumcises that which was uncircumcised, and instills new qualities into the will. He makes the will which was dead alive, which was bad good, which was unwilling willing, and which was stubborn obedient. He moves and strengthens it so that, like a good tree, it may be able 
to produce the fruit of good works. So your will is made alive. And then, Article 12, second column, first line from the top, and then the will so renewed is not only acted upon and moved by God, but acted upon by God, the will itself also acts. Therefore, man himself is rightly said to believe and repent through the grace that he has received. So we are not able to change our will ourselves. That's also reflected in our passage. King David, the psalmist, is a believer, but he knows that he needs ongoing sanctification. He knows that on his own he cannot worship God. If you look at verse 11 of the psalm, he needs to be taught. That implies ignorance. He needs to learn to walk in God's truth, which means he struggles with doing that. And his heart needs to be united, which implies that it is not. That is true of all of us. By nature, we are spiritually fragmented. That's why we need God's ongoing work of renewal in our lives, as it's detailed for us here in the Canons of Dort. And even when we're at our best, to do God's will is more than just complying. It's more than just obeying. It is to live a life that is fully devoted to God in thought, in word, and in deed. There's only one person who ever did that. That was our Lord Jesus Christ. He was perfectly submitted to God's will. He submitted himself unto death. That's where his obedience took him. Think about his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was about to be crucified. He knew he was going to drink the cup of God's wrath. And he prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You think about what perfect obedience cost him. Christ was perfectly obedient to the will of his Father. He didn't only die to atone for our sins. He also lived a life that was in perfect submission to the law of God at all times. It was God's will for him to pour out his life for sinners. And so his obedience in going to the cross was part of that offering that he made. He didn't merely obey. He obeyed wholeheartedly. He didn't murmur. He didn't complain. He didn't resist. He simply submitted. Christ's death was not just a good example for us. Jesus Christ died for sinners. That's all of us. He died to ransom sinners, to make them his people. He died so that God would be able to give us a new heart and a new will, just like we read. Now that new will needs to show itself in all things. That's why the Catechism says, grant that we and all men may deny our own will and without any murmuring obey your will. It is part of a process. It is part of the work that God does in us because of what Christ has done for us. That's what the canons of Dort are trying to explain to us. And the alternative to all this is not that you get to live a life for yourself, that it's not as if either you get to be independent or you submit yourself to God. You don't get to live for yourself. The alternative is that you are bound in sin. To reject God's will might look like freedom, but it means that you're enslaved to sin. In John 8, verse 34, Jesus said that anyone who sins is a slave to sin. That's the opposite of obedience. The opposite of obedience is not independence. The opposite of obedience is sin. 
There's no place between obedience and sin where you get to do things your own way but not really sin. People think that there is. Even Christians think that there is sometimes. They generally try to keep most of what they're told to do, but they still live for, their own, for themselves. But it doesn't even work that way in other areas of life. Let me give you an illustration from air travel. About um, what would it be now, 33 years ago, the 10th of June, 1990, there was a British Airways flight en route from England to Spain. They'd climbed up to 5,300 meters when the left windscreen panel suddenly blew out. Because of the explosive decompression, the captain actually got sucked out of the plane. He wasn't wearing a seatbelt. A flight attendant grabbed his legs and held on. And eventually, the co-pilot landed the plane. Miraculously, the captain survived, and five months later, he was flying again. Now, afterwards, there was an investigation. And the investigators discovered that 84 of the 90 bolts that had been used to secure this front windscreen panel were 0.66 of a millimeter, too small a diameter. And the remaining bolts were the right diameter, but they were a fraction too short. To the untrained eye, they all look the same. You can find the story with a picture of the bolts on Wikipedia if you want. You look at the bolts, you can't tell them apart. They look the same, but they weren't the same. And what is the point? The point is that the same principle applies to life. Many people think that as long as they live a reasonably good life, they'll be all right. But just because your life reflects Christian values does not make it a Christian life. Just because you have something that looks exactly like the real thing doesn't make it the real thing. If it isn't a life lived in submission to the will of Christ, it is not a Christian life. But now as we think about all of this, it may seem a bit contradictory. I mean, we just read that the Holy Spirit gives us a new will or implants, in a sense, implants new qualities into the will after regenerating us. So if we get a renewed will, why does it take so much effort to obey God? Why do we need to deny our own will if God gives us a new one? But the thing to understand is that your will is not static. Will only shows when you make a choice. And learning to make good choices takes time. It takes time to learn to be obedient. The psalmist understood this too. In verse 11, he says, Unite my heart to fear your name, or as the 1984 NIV put it, give me an undivided heart. And when you have an undivided heart, when your will lines up more and more with the will of God, then you find joy in obedience. But that, that is a process. Obedience is something that needs to be, in a sense, practiced over time. That makes sense, right? Obedience is not a, a single moment, although it's composed of individual moments. Obedience in and of itself is not a single moment. It's, it's a series of actions over time. And we need to learn how to obey. The greatest battles of faith are fought on this level of the will. And sometimes they take place in the innermost parts of a person. That's one reason why we need to regard each other with kindness as church members. You know, sometimes you have church members that appear to be living an ordinary life. But underneath the surface, there's this massive struggle going on. They're very much praying, your will be done. 
They're very much trying to deny their own will. They're very much trying without any murmuring to obey God's will. So you could be looking at someone and you might have judged them in your mind already. And don't say that it doesn't happen. We all do this. You look at some church members and you have a prejudice in your mind about them. You think, well, this person is shy. This person is socially awkward. Maybe especially our youth think that way sometimes. They have some opinion about someone else. But you know what? For all you know, you could be looking at a spiritual hero or heroine. You're looking at someone who is making a tremendous effort to submit to the will of God. So we need to deal with each other kindly. We need to encourage each other in this fight because we're all poor and needy. That's how David refers to himself in verse 1. You think about it. I mean, he's, he's the king, right? How can he be poor and needy? Well, because over time that phrase came to represent those who live in total dependence on God. Not because they're virtuous, but because they have nowhere else to go. They are poor and needy. And we're poor and needy. We don't have anywhere else to go. The only way we can ever learn to live this holy life that God desires of us is if he walks with us every step of the way. And he's delighted to do so. God is delighted when we call unto him, when we pray, grant that we and all men may desire our, may deny our own will and without any murmuring obey your will, for it alone is good. God is delighted to answer that prayer. First, he transforms us, then he leads us, he teaches us his way, he enables us to walk in his truth, he unites our heart to fear his name. So how does he do that? Well, primarily by His Word. The more time we spend in the Word, the more we learn what God's will is, the more we want to do it. If we don't bother discovering the will of God, how can He answer this prayer in our lives? So we must be immersed in it every day. It can be difficult to motivate ourselves to do so, and that's why we have Bible study clubs as well. We can learn from each other. We can be a good influence on each other in club and we can be transformed together, and then the deeds follow. And so we'll look at that in our next point, the transformation of our deeds. You see, worship and obedience belong together. To worship is to acknowledge God. But who is God? God is your creator. God is the lawgiver. So you cannot acknowledge God as lawgiver and then ignore his law. Obedience is a critical component of worship. And where do we obey God? In the day to day details of our lives. And the Catechism picks up on that as well when it says, Grant also that everyone may carry out the duties of his office and calling as willingly and as faithfully as the angels in heaven. So what are these duties of our office and calling? Well, everyday things. The office could refer to the office of all believers, Lord's Day 12. And for some of us, we're ordained to special offices as well. All of us, regardless of who we are, have certain duties. All these everyday things, work, play, parenting, loving your spouse, paying your bills... And all of these are 
where you learn obedience. You learn it through constant choices, through constantly asking yourself, what does God require of me in this situation? What does the Word of God say about these circumstances? And then living accordingly. And then in all of that obedience, even in the really mundane things, all of that gleams with the light of heaven. As willingly and faithfully as the angels in heaven. And again, it takes time to learn how to do this. You might think that the more experience you get in the Christian life, the easier this becomes. And if you're young and you're struggling with particular sins, um, it is true there are aspects of Christian living that become easier as you mature, but there are other aspects that become, you start to see more clearly where you fall short. And that's reflected in the psalm as well because It's apparent from reading this psalm that this man, David, is a godly man. But the more he grows to know the Lord, the more he realizes that he's falling short. And so again, verse 11, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. He's seeing more and more clearly that this is what he needs. So the clarity of our vision grows through praying this petition. It grows by learning to live by it. And it takes time. And initially, we might be quite satisfied with ourselves. But as we mature in our faith, we start to see things differently, accurately. It's a little bit like the difference between a home diagnosis versus going to the doctor. Imagine a man who wakes up one morning and he isn't feeling well. And he diagnoses himself with, let's call it, indigestion. But the pain continues, even though he tries some supplements and stuff like that and changes his diet, the pain continues and eventually he gets really worried. So he goes to the doctor and the doctor asks him some more questions and discusses his options. So now the man and the doctor both have a slightly better idea as to what the problem is. But to really see things clearly, he needs to go and have an MRI, right? It's only then that he is able to clearly see what's going on inside of him, to know what's happening inside of him. So the problem itself didn't change, did it? It was only his perspective on it that changed. And there's a spiritual analogy there. Scripture does the same thing to us. We try to live our life in the light of Scripture. We try to be obedient to the degree that we understand what obedience is. Maybe we don't always take it seriously. But over time, as we grow in our faith as our understanding matures, as we try to obey and fail and succeed and try some more, we begin to see how deeply sin is rooted in our lives and how thorough God's work in our lives needs to be. Now, practically, one place where many of us can grow in obedience is in the area of entertainment choices. Do you ever watch movies with questionable content? Consider that against the light of this third petition, your will be done. How does any of what you're watching fit with that? The actors depicting sin? The movies celebrating sin? The people gathering to watch sin? The directors profiting from sin? Where is God's will obeyed in any of that? What about music? You ask any person, almost. And most people will automatically respond with, well, I don't listen to the lyrics. 
Well, maybe you should. Ignoring the lyrics doesn't change their content, does it? And the same principle applies there as well. How can you listen to some of this stuff all day and then pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? If you really meant that, these lyrics would be the first thing to go. And some might complain, well, then I don't get to watch or listen to anything anymore. Well, no, maybe you don't. What did you expect? You're supposed to be in the world, not of it. And besides, it's not even true that you can't watch anything anymore or listen to anything anymore. There's a wide diversity of art out there. Not all of it is incompatible with what Scripture teaches us. Just like in the fields of technology and science, so also sometimes in the arts, God can give to unbelievers a certain insight and understanding into particular life circumstances. And it can be in its own way educational to, to listen to that or to learn that. But we won't know what any of this is without using our discernment, and it takes effort, and you may have to make sacrifices, and yes, you may need to get rid of most of what you listen to. And you know what? Many Christians could not be bothered to put in that effort. They sing Psalm 86, but they don't believe a word of it. And that's much worse than having to give up some of your music. So you see, grant that we and all men may deny our own will. You see how deeply this runs? You see how difficult this is? You see how far we still have left to go? We're not there yet. We do have a divided heart. It's true. It's true of us all. Maybe you always do the will of God, but not out of conviction. Maybe sometimes we obey because it's convenient. We obey out of custom, out of habit, out of superstition. We obey because nothing better has come along. And then one day it does. One day God tests us. One day we realize that we're vulnerable because our motivations were never really right to begin with. How else could we explain that some people who otherwise seem sensible sometimes make really foolish decisions? You see someone that you knew and they throw it all away, sometimes after many years. Why? Why did they do that? And maybe that opportunity is still coming for you. A woman you can't resist. A habit you can't break. A deal you can't pass up, you start to rationalize. Does that possibility frighten you? Because it should. You should be frightened. It shows how vulnerable we all are. We all need ongoing sanctification. We all need to pray the third petition. We need God to grant us these things because they don't come to us naturally. To grant means that it's a gift out of God's grace. Give us your grace. So how does the Lord enable you to walk on His way? By putting you in a church community, putting you together. Grant that we and all men may deny our own will, and without any murmuring, obey your will, for it alone is good. God's will is good. A society in which everyone follows their own way is a society which is chaotic, and you really don't need to look far. We see that chaos in the current dysfunction surrounding sexuality, family life, and so on. 
Everyone is self-centered. And now you compare that to life when you obey God's will. God gives us that life. He puts us in families. He, he puts us in church community together. Look at the peace that we generally have in our families. Yes, there are exceptions. Yes, occasionally you find dysfunction in free reformed families as well, but you know what? By and large, it's pretty different from everything else that's out there. Look at the peace that we have in our church community. Even this afternoon, we sit here, we listen to the gospel together, we're united in a common faith. It's so beautiful. It's a fruit of the Spirit. That's the peace that you get when you pray for this petition, when you pray for God to continue His work of transformation in us. We all have an office and calling. We all have a place in God's community. The Catechism says, Grant also that everyone may carry out the duties of his office and calling as willingly and as faithfully as the angels in heaven. You think about what that means. We have a place in God's creation alongside the angels. God is busy restoring us. And that place is more than a spot in the pew or a bench in the school. It's an office. It's a calling. It's the office of all believers carried out in their day-to-day tasks. And when that is carried out with obedience, you get joy, a bit of that heavenly joy on earth already. So we all have a place, a gift given to us through Christ. You don't need to earn your place. He did that for you. And you think about that. The catechism here refers to, to the angels in heaven, that we may carry out the duties of our office and calling as willingly and faithfully as the angels in heaven. But you know what? All of these angels, with all of their faithfulness, none of them call God their Father, even though they have never sinned. That shows us that being God's child is a gift. It's never something you could earn by obedience. But because we are His children, through Jesus Christ, our relationship with God is reflected in our obedience. God transforms our will, and then our deeds follow. In the third petition, we pray for God to continue His work of transformation in us. And when He does that, we find true joy in our lives. God's law is not a burden. We're allowed to keep God's law. He gives it to us to keep. He gives us an office and a calling. He's made us husbands and wives and parents and grandparents and electricians and mechanics and teachers and office bearers. We get to do His work. The joy of being able to work on God's earth before His face, doing His will, that is a love and delight. That fills our days with meaning. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. One day this prayer will be answered in perfection. One day God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven because heaven will come down to earth. They will be united. All the nations God has made shall come and worship before Him and shall glorify His name. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. Are you looking forward to it? Amen.